best bumper video ever. Mission Impossible. You gotta love that. Hey, uh, we're in a series, this is week two of a series called Minority Report, and the whole premise is 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, and two were good. We're going to continue in our story. Last week we started in Numbers chapter 13. Today we're going to be Numbers chapter 14. So if you want to turn in your Bible and uh, hold it in readiness there, we're going to be flying through this morning. Just want to uh, make sure that we understand a little bit of the context here of where we were left last week. We were left at this place, right? And we we talked about it and applied it even to our own lives. We, We all come to this place of decision where we're going to choose to trust God, or we're going to choose to trust ourselves, or we're going to choose to trust the ways of God, or we're going to choose to trust the ways of the world. It was this place in Scripture called Kadesh Barnea. And we even jumped ahead to the end of the book of Numbers and read that after the 40 years of being delayed going into the promised land, once again, they came to this place of reckoning called Kadesh Barnea to see where they're going to have the faith, where they're going to have the trust, where they're going to have the hope and where they're going to have the obedience to follow God's ways, to follow God's commands, and to go in and take the promised land that he had promised them. And yet, where we're going to pick up today is kind of in the middle of the whole story because the spies have just came back and, and Joshua and Caleb said, hey, the land is good, it's flowing with milk and honey. We, yeah, there's people groups here, but we can take these people. God is on our side. We can go take the land. Let's go. And then we get to the other side of it where 10, the rest of the spies said, hey, hey I, you know, the people are big and we look like grasshoppers compared to them. In, in, in our own eyes and in theirs, we shouldn't go in and take the land. And that's where we pick up with Numbers 14, verse 1 today. So let's read. That night... After this bad report in 13, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. There was weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Remember that. Those words are going to come back to haunt them. Verse 3, Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to just go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader. Get rid of Moses. Get rid of Aaron. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, let's remind ourselves. They hated Egypt. They had cried out to the Lord. They had begged God to deliver them out of the slavery and out of the bondage in Egypt. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. So distraught, crying out to the Lord. Verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. This is a sign of deep mourning and just anguish. They just tore their clothes. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Sounds like good odds, right? Do not be afraid of them, of those people. 
Be more afraid of God, verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them, stoning the two spies. And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all of the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all of the signs that I performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a, into a nation greater and stronger than they. Now, if you know scripture and you know the story, we've been here before with Moses and with God. If you read the book of Exodus, it was around Exodus chapter 32, I believe, that God had once again said to Moses, hey, I'm going to wipe the Israelites out. I'm done with them. I'm going to make you into a great nation. We'll carry on the plan. We'll carry on everything through you. Verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have, seen, have, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he had promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now, may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. And then here's Moses reminding God who he is. He said, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time that they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills this whole earth, not one of these who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times. And if you actually go back in scripture, you can actually look from the time of Exodus till now, 10 times where the Israelites did not trust God and chose their own ways or someone else's ways over God's ways. Verse 23, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But, and check out what he says about Caleb here. He says, but because my servant Caleb has what? A different spirit. And does what? And follows me wholeheartedly. Those are keys there. He's got a different spirit about him. He follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them. Now remember verse 2, what we read. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. And every one of you 20 years old or more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, 
No one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except for Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in this wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days that you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. Do you feel the wrath of Almighty God? How many times does he call them wicked and sinful? And he just, you can feel the frustration. Verse 36. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. Those 10 guys, these men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. And early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord has promised. Surely we have sinned. But Moses said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Remember what God had just told him. Don't go up. In fact, turn around and go back. But Moses said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country. Though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. In other words, the Lord's presence was staying there in the camp. But a bunch of them said, oh, let's go, let's go take the promised land now on our terms. Verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all of the way to Hormah. Frustrating, isn't it? And as you read the text, you feel the frustration of God. Have you ever had that feeling in life as a human? Maybe, maybe it's towards someone in your family. Maybe, maybe you're a parent, it's toward your children. You find yourself saying, after all I've done for you, right? You felt that way at some point in your life. Maybe it's for somebody in your workplace. After all I've done for you. Maybe you've given this, this, this guy a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth chance. You're like, after all I've done for you, <laughs> this is how you're going to treat me. You're going to choose another way. And this isn't on human flesh terms here. This is the God of the universe. The creator of all mankind and all of creation and even these people. There's several things that I think we need to learn from the text today. And I want you to understand that God is the one to be trusted. God is the one to be feared. God is the one to be obeyed. God is the only sure thing for these Israelites and for us. Because of that, we, we need to learn several things. The first one is this, hold God in the proper place and perspective. Please 
hold God in the proper place in a proper perspective. We're in college football season. They put out rankings. And everybody every week wants to go and see what they're ranked. Of all the things on earth, of all the things that God can offer, of all the things that are offered you in life, God is number one always. He's never dethroned, thrown off to number two. He's always number one. He is to be the highest, the most exalted, the most revered, the most feared, and the most obeyed in your life. And really, in the life of every human upon the, on the earth. He is the Lord. He is the master. He is your commander-in-chief. The Lord, God Almighty. He is over all the earth, and he is over us. And yet, in verse 9 of our text, let's read that again. What does Joshua and Caleb beg them to do? They said, only do not rebel against the Lord. And then the next line kind of answers what the rebellion is about. And do not be afraid of the people of the land. In other words, don't be afraid more of what's happening in the land. Don't be afraid more of people, of just humans, but fear the Lord. Do not rebel against the Lord by fearing man more than you fear the Lord. Why? Because they're not on the same level. God is number one. God is the highest. God is the best. And if you do not view God as that way, that might be the core root of your problem in following him. You must put him on the throne where he is seated over all. And these bold words in verse 9 elicit a response. In verse 10, what do they say? Do you remember? Verse 10, they say, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. It's such an affront to have to put God on the throne. They're so far in their thinking, of their, their, in their humanness, in their, in their flesh of thinking how they know the way and they know the plan. They know better than God. So the first part is the stoning. And then look what God does. It's amazing. The next part in verse 10 says, And then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites, not just to Moses and the leadership, but to all the Israelites. You know, the tent of meeting was, was part of the whole apparatus we call the tabernacle. And tabernacle actually means dwelling. It, it, means, uh, it means to uh, bond with people, to be with people. That it means the presence. And that's what it represented to the Israelites is whenever they, where they went, they set up the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle was the, was the Ark of the Covenant and all of these things. And that's where Moses many times went to this tent of meeting to go inside and communicate to God. And here, really probably to save the lives of God's two spies, the ones that gave the minority report, he shows up at the tent of meeting and all of Israel knows, oh, God is here. His glory shows up in the tent of meeting. And it's as if God is nudging them to say, hold me in the proper place and perspective. I think it would serve us well to do that today. In spite of all that's going on in the world, put God in the highest place. Exalt him in your life. Make him number one. Put him on the throne. Make him your master and your Lord. The second thing that we can learn this morning is that a lack of faith or a distrust in God is a sin that is its own punishment. 
It's a sin that is its own punishment. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. When you trust in something else, anything else, and maybe it's another human being even, maybe, maybe it's a government, maybe it's a military, maybe it's just in your own mind, it's, it's just your, your thoughts, your plan. You think you're smarter and better than everyone else and you know more than everyone else. But when you have a lack of faith or you mistrust God and you put your trust in something else, it is a sin that is its own punishment. And you may ask why. Let's think of it in its most basic terms here in the text. Do you understand that they could have just gone into the promised land and took it? (laughs) But no, they had to do it their way. They had to spy it out, check it out. They were just doing that to find a route, remember, Just, just to find a route. But they come back full of fear and doubts. The hard way. That's what we choose sometimes. And that seems to be the way the Israelites keep choosing. They'll put their trust and their faith in themselves. And in a way, it's its own punishment because now they lack God's blessing. And even at the end of our text today, they try to go into the promised land on their own terms and on their own timeline. And God said, no. I've already established 40 years you're going to wait now. And all of you that are 20 years and older are going to die in this wilderness. If you think about it, the effect of the Israelites' unbelief was really almost an accusation against God. It was almost like they were accusing God of lying when he said, I'm taking you to the promised land and I will give you this land. It's almost like they said, no, you won't. Not really. And, and, and they do this and they push back on it to the point they're actually wanting to go back to bondage in Egypt. When God said freely, I will give you the land. And you want to know some ways that, that, that not trusting God is, 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 is a sin and is a punishment in and of itself? You see it there in verses 1 through 3 of Numbers 14. Let's read it. That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud, wailing out. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to our old ways, to our old patterns? Unbelief. And negativity, do you feel it rising up in the nation? Unbelief, negativity, and then it leads to stress and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Do you feel any of those things in the world today? Maybe when a nation turns away from Almighty God and says, Oh God, we know better than you. We don't need to follow your ways or your will. We'll do it our own way. When you don't trust God and you start putting your faith in something else, it's a sin that is its own punishment. Third thing this morning, moving away from God's will and his ways is the sin of rebellion. Do you feel the anger of Almighty God as we read chapter 14? When he says, you have totally rebelled, you've totally gone your own Way. Now, I want to point out there is a difference between a lack of faith and trust in God and willfully sinning and rebelling against what you know he wants you to do. 
And in this case, in point in this text, it's really as if these people did both. Israel rebelled against the Lord's plans and his commands. The things that they knew for sure, they rebelled and went their own direction. And you see the results. And if we move away from God's will and his commands, and we don't do the things that we know we should be doing, how can we expect our life to be any different today? This always amazes me. There are scriptures in the Bible that are crystal clear, and yet it seems like culture wants to bend them. And and this is infiltrated even into the church. That that if if there's some way we can twist it, if there's some way we can bend this, or, or, or God perhaps didn't really mean that, or didn't mean it to the extreme at which he said it, or, or when God gives us these commands, it was just for Israel and, and just for the disciples and just for the church in the New Testament and not for us. But God makes it clear, and that's why he gives us the gift of his word. This is how you should live. And you see it today. And you feel it today. And it's frustrating Sometimes you may see it in yourself, but a lot of times it's easier to see in other people. You see people that are Christians. You would talk to them and they'd say, I'm a follower of Christ. But they don't follow Christ. They don't do what Scripture says. They practice immorality just like the world. They use cursing and foul language just like the world. They operate financially just like the world. They commit adultery just like the world. And you could go on and name just about categorically every type of sin the scripture gives us clearly that Christians don't do What God has asked him to do and moving away from God's will and his ways is the sin of rebellion. We could talk about this categorically and and that might have popped into your mind this morning as we could talk about the nation of the United States of America, not just Israel. Moving away from God, not holding to his values, not holding to his ways and feeling like right before our eyes, the hand of blessing what has been upon this nation for so many years is slowly getting pulled back. Why would we expect anything different than what we read in Scripture? And remember, in Scripture, it also goes as far to say, and I think it's in James 4, 17, to him who knows the good and does not do it, it is sin. If you know what you're supposed to do and you do not do it, <laughs> it is sin. And sin separates us from God. In John 14, 15, Jesus reminded his disciples in the upper room. He said, if you love me, if you love me, keep my commands. We're also reminded in a text in in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, listen to this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. This is what happens a lot, I think, today. People sin and and they claim to be without sin and they deceive themselves and the truth is just not in us. But if we confess, if we take a step back and we see it and we say, okay, Lord, if we can confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So clean us up and make us new again and whole again through the blood of Jesus Christ. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a what? To be a liar and his word then is not in us. To the extent that we choose our own way over God's ways, we're calling the Lord a liar because we're not walking the direction and the way that God wants us to walk. And moving away from his will and his commands and his ways is a sin of rebellion. It's time to repent and to turn back to God. Last thing this morning, we are not so much a people of great faith, but a people of faith in a great God. We are not so much a people of great faith, but a people of faith in a great God. I think that perhaps Joshua and Caleb's vision of God was different than the rest of Israel. That Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb saw God in a different light. Their God was still big enough. Their God was still strong enough. Their God was faithful. Their God was their rock and their salvation. And what emboldened these men wasn't their own ability to fight. It wasn't their own planning in their mind. It wasn't their their strategic route taking into the promised land. No, it was the fact that God will go before me and prepare the way. These bold men would not back down because they believed in God more than they believed in themselves and more than they believed in anything that man could give them. And our vision of God determines our response to nearly every situation and challenge that we face in life. It is directly affected how you are looking at your life and how you're looking at your challenges and your circumstances right now is directly affected by how you view God. And Joshua and Caleb were men of faith that believed in a God that would go before them and prepare the way. They didn't exactly understand how, and guess what? They would say to you, we don't need to know how. We just know God. Sometimes we need to give up knowing the how. We just need to know God. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. I will walk in obedience to him. The song that came to my mind, an old song, maybe some of you will know it had words like this, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways you cannot see. He will make a way for me. Some of you may remember that song. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. And when you feel like your life is spinning out of control, remember, God. God is the sure thing. As we close our time this morning, I want to read to you from Psalm 46. Listen to what this declares about the Lord our God. 
God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth may give way and the mountains may fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and the foam of the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought upon the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He turns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I am exalted amongst the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord God Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is the only way. God's not a way. He's the only way. He's the only sure thing. He's the only one who can be trusted. He's the only one that could be our rock and our salvation. He needs to be the cornerstone of your life. He is the one. Amazing thing I find as I read Numbers 13 and 14, I've read a whole bunch of numbers. In fact, I've read the whole book this year in my devos. God is always a God that is moving. I feel like God is never stagnant. He's always moving. He's always doing something. Even when you don't see it and even when you don't feel it, he's just, he's just, he's just a God of movement. And what's amazing to me is that this God of movement seems to always be moving toward people. He's always moving toward his creation. I think sometimes when I read something like the middle of Numbers 14, I'm thinking God is out of here, right? God is, God is gone. But when you read it all, you find out, no, no, no. There will be a season of chastisement here and some discipline, and there'll be 40 years, a year for every day that you went and spied out the land and gave a bad report. God, the people all stirred up against me. But your children, all those under 20, in 40 years, they're going to walk into this land. They're going to take it again. They're going to go in. They're going to take the land They're going to do what God said. They're going to be right there at Kadesh Barnea again. They're going to make that decision to go and go God's way. And as as I was thinking about this, I think there are times in life where I think sometimes we feel like God's not near. God's not close. And some of you may feel that this morning. You may feel like, I just don't feel close to God right now. I feel like God is, is distant. And then there may be been times in life, and maybe if, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you remember your salvation experience. You remember what it was like to give your life and your heart. When, when, when the gospel clicked in your mind and you were like, yes, I'm in, I'm going God's way, this is, yes. You tasted the watery grave of baptism. You were raised to walk in newness of life. 
And maybe even beyond that experience, there's been these times and these seasons where you feel like, yes, I feel really close to God. But there's sometimes where God feels distant. And then I feel really close to God and there might be some ebb and flow to that. But I wanna challenge you with this thought this morning. If you feel far away from God or you have felt far away from God, or maybe today you're like, I just I feel like God's distant. Why don't you answer this question honestly? Who moved? Who moved away? Was that God moving away from you? Or were you moving away from God? To the point that you would not trust him and not put your faith in him and maybe take what you know he says and how he wants you to live and rebel against him just like the Israelites to the point where you feel distant from God, who moved? Because I remember, if I remember right, God sent his son to us. I've always had this view of God. If there were a thousand steps between you and God, God would take 999 of them. All we have to take is one. And as I read scripture, I see that even when he's frustrated with the Israelites, and maybe even a little frustrated with us, that God says, I'm still moving towards you. I'm still pursuing you. I still have a relationship with you. And I'm not giving up on you. Even till the day you die, I will not give up on you. My presence of the gospel, and not only for salvation, but for a life in this world that could be the fullest that it could possibly be while you are on the earth, is possible if you'll just take one step toward me. If you make one decision that I will be Lord, that I will be master, that I will be savior. That one step is called faith. That one step is called obedience. That one step is called surrender. And God continues to pursue.